Hello, everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. First, I want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us at Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. You get bonus episodes over there. We just recently talked about the most recent installment to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. We didn't love it, but we talked about it for an hour nonetheless. <laughs> and we're soon going to talk about Center Stage, which has been a much requested episode or bonus episode and that is where that is going to take place you are good is also made possible with support by knack factory k-n-a-c-k factory a commercial and creative video content production company based in portland maine though does work throughout these here united states if you need that sort of work done get in touch with the fine folks at knack factory so today we are talking about Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, with our wonderful friend J.V. Hampton Van Zandt. You can hear J.V., who's just like just the best guest, most delightful, came dressed for the occasion for this conversation. J.V., you can hear in our Birds of Prey episode, which was just so much fun then, and this conversation with J.V. is also so much fun. Just a quick reminder that we have playlists that accompany each of our episodes. You can find that linked in the show notes. Just so you know, we have playlists that accompany each of our episodes. They're inspired by our conversation about the movie at hand as well as the movie at hand. So you can find that again linked in the show notes. And I just want to give you a warning that we talk about rape briefly in this episode. Attempted rape is something that happens in the storyline. So please know that that's coming. We don't get into a whole lot of detail, but we do acknowledge it. Just know that that is on its way. All right, now join us in our yellow convertible 1967 Cadillac DeVille. Buckle up, because we're about to go on an adventure. Let's talk about Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, with J.B. Hampton Vincent. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Miss Alex Steed. How, how are you doing today? I'm great. Because I just finished watching To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, which I always want to call Love Julie Newmar, but she didn't sign love. She just signed her name. She's very cool. Yes. I woke up at five this morning. I watched this at six mm-hmm. and I should do that more often because this was yes. a fantastic approach. And Carolyn walked in at one point and watched part of it. And I don't know if she was familiar with the movie beforehand, but she was like, is this the story about the yassification of a town? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it sure is. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh my god. That's exactly correct. (laughs) Miss Carolyn. Who brought this to us? Who brought this film to us? Hello all. I'm JV. You might remember me from the Birds of Prey episode. I am a voice actor and podcaster and TTRPG enthusiast Hmm. and also a trans woman, which is one of the main reasons that I actually enjoy this movie, despite its weirdly occasionally problematic views on gender. You don't say. Extremely problematic (laughs) views on gender. Yeah. But it's from the 90s. So like. It's from before nuance existed. (laughs) Sarah, what is this movie? Walk us through what happens. What do we see? What what occurs? Okay. To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar is a movie about three New York City drag queens, Vita Boem, played by Patrick Swayze, Noxima Jackson, played by Wesley Snipes, and Chichi Rodriguez, played by John Leguizamo, who has not 
really aged has just been kind of around <laughs> the same age for my entire life. Honestly, yeah. Is that of the three of them, the only one that had ever done drag before was John Leguizamo. And I was surprised in terms of like doing a character for like a thing. Yeah, that's right. The other thing about John Leguizamo is that you can never remember any movies that he's been in. And then suddenly he's in 50 things that you like. To Wong Fu, Chef, Spawn. <laughs> Exactly. Summer of Sam, a movie that had its interesting moments. <laughs> and oh he was there. Okay. I've already derailed this train. This is going to happen more times, but I'm going to try for it to not. Okay. I'm trying. All right. So three drag queens, they go to a drag ball and this movie takes place in what feels like a world where there is a Miss America-like drag pageant circuit. There was. Oh, there is. Okay. Well, great. I had no idea. That's so sad for me. I mean, it was also the 90s where nobody really knew that. But like, that was the part of it where I was like, yeah, no, never have I questioned this whole thing because it makes perfect sense. It's where the concept of a pageant queen comes from, Mm. at least in the drag world. That's where that term generally comes from. And it was around. I don't know that it was well funded enough to just send two winners of a thing Mm -hmm. to like a national champion. Maybe it was. I hope for some people it was. Yeah. Yeah. But my wonder was like, did we sort of insert Miss America qualities to this so that audiences would understand what was going on? Probably. I look forward to hearing from drag queens who are older than 45 who participated in here this episode. Yeah. I, for one, absolutely want to hear from those people because I just want to know them. It just sounds fun. I want the stories. I want to hear all the stories. Oh, my God. So Vita Boem and Noxima Jackson are the co-winners of this competition. And so they win a trip to Hollywood to go to... Is it Miss Drag Queen USA? Yes. Okay. I would describe Vita Boheme's style as Julia Sugarbaker in Designing Women, the most dignified of the designing women played by Dixie Carter, who like gives a lot of speeches and wears a lot of suits and just like is, I don't know, just all about dignity and like hold your chin up. And also this old fashioned sort of fairy godmother quality of believe in good things for yourself. Absolutely. That's Vita to a T. Drag mom, basically. (laughs) How would we describe Noxima's style? Well, she is brassy. In more recent years, I've watched things such as, I've watched like one season of Pose. I actually haven't gotten to more of it. Vita is a queen who would be, I would imagine, in the face category. And Mm. possibly the body, but most likely not body. But definitely she is the walk. She is walking the runway. Noxima is likely not going to win when walking the runway, but probably the most likely of them to be a comedy queen. Hmm. Definitely will slay in the basketball competition. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love her so much. She's so wild just as a character. I, I appreciate her a lot. Have we talked about the correlatory to Clueless? No, not yet. The character <laughs> dynamics in this are one for one. Ty, Cher, and uh, D. what? D. Dion. Yes. If Dion had depth, if they gave Dion depth in that movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
blowing my mind already. I'm like, yeah, no, that's right. Their dynamic, their mission, the like gravity that they each bring, the like characteristics, it's the same group of people. I don't know which came out first, but right? very, very true. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Like the more I think about it, the more it hits because Vita is rich and like very confident in her <laughs> ability yeah. to help people. <laughs> Excessively so. Uh-huh. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. And then they have like a curly haired little daughter. <laughs> yeah. Who's like real brassy and city like and has to learn how to have poise. Yeah. And has an outer borough accent. Oh my God. It just keeps piling And then at on. the end is Liza Minnelli. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I did drag very, very briefly and pretty much only when I was in college. But even in that weird little moment, that was the vibe around like who's going to be doing what and what they would need to learn. But that act of taking somebody under their wing is a thing that is very true. It's the whole cornerstone of like the entirety of the community part of it. And it's. Hmm honestly one of the most beautiful things to see it reminds me of like a plot in a land before time sequel or something where i feel like there's really a lesson in a lot of little kids movies and not so much in movies for adults that's like now now like we have a new family member and we have to you know take them wherever we go even though they're annoying ohana means no one gets left behind and the fact that this was directed by a woman also makes it anomalous because yeah. like women were never allowed to direct movies until 2004. I was shocked. Not shocked right? because I didn't think like it gave that because women can't make movies. Totally. It was like it just ain't no, it was just like Amy Heckerling. Like that was it for directors in the 90s for like pop movies. Right. <laughs> And like you needed a lot of faith in you to be able to do something that went out on any kind of a limb. And this one goes out on multiple limbs, I think. So <laughs> Vita Boehm and Noxie McJackson tie for the title. They win the trip to Hollywood. And then as they're excited to get ready for their trip, they find Kiki Rodriguez, who didn't win, but was very confident that she was going to, crying in the stairwell. And Vita is like, oh my goodness, we must help this poor child and we will bring her to Hollywood with us and we will teach her to be a true queen because she isn't a drag queen yet. Okay, and so then they go to a restaurant where there's a cameo by Naomi Campbell. Robin Williams shows up as his character, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, which is like, I don't know, just like an angel (laughs) dropping into the movie. Is that his character from The Birdcage? No, I think The Birdcage came out after this. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. This is a pre-Birdcage Hollywood, Alex. Can you... I mean... Oh, my God. That's wild. That is wild. Okay, so they decide to trade in their plane fare for a car rental at a kind of a shady lot that Robin Williams gives them a voucher for. So they go to get a car and... Just like Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise before them, they're like, let's take this classic American road trip in a classic American automobile. (laughs) And they get an old rusty Cadillac. Style or function. (laughs) Like, oh, obviously I rewatched it for this. But prior to that, it was a few months ago. And for some reason, I never remember that sequence of like them looking at themselves, like driving off the lot in this fancy looking car and saying, do we want this or do we want practical? And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) Like it, It always fills me with dread. And yet I never remember it. 
Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Just looking at life. <laughs> <laughs> Practical or functional. Uh-huh. Well. Hmm. Yeah. And so I don't know if Chi-Chi has, I forget, but Noxima has brought up multiple times the concern. I would prefer not to drive across America. I am a black drag queen. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another funny thing about this movie, I was reading Roger Ebert's review, and I think that his complaint was that it was like, not original and too frivolous and dumb and whatever. And I think that it got that kind of criticism a lot, which I feel like is a way to not engage with the subject matter on some level. Yep. His criticism was so interesting because it seems like it's trying to be about individuality, but it never quite gets there. And I was like, are we watching the same movie? Right. <laughs> what would that have to look like for you? <laughs> I did see a lot of things where it said the reason that this doesn't fare as well is because there was a very similar movie about a year and a half prior. Mm. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Yeah, yeah, just generally like almost the same beats. Yeah, they're not wrong. But also, who wouldn't want another one of those? <laughs> exactly. But also, yeah, this is not a very like light and frivolous movie. There's a lot of like heavy stuff that happens, mm-hmm. like presumably what you're about to mention. <laughs> This is something that at least I feel like I haven't seen very much in movies where there's like this really constant combination, especially in the opening third of we're on the road, we're having a great time, do to do, we're like fully dressed, full glam, just driving down the road in a Cadillac, having a great time, dancing at the people on the train. And then next scene, it's like, it's really late and we don't want to stop at any of these motels because we're scared. And that's the road trip portion. And then a cop, a racist cop tries to rape one of them. Well, I was getting there. <laughs> well, you said that's the road trip portion. Yeah. And then I was going to do a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like a big part of the road trip. No, I'm getting Trust me. <laughs> Would I forget that? <laughs> I trust you. It's just the words. I just, you know, it sounded like we were done with the car. <laughs> no, it's like that's the road trip portion. And then we tangent about the road trip portion. And then we talk about Chris Penn. All right. <laughs> it is very opposite of his role in Footloose situation. <laughs> well, all right. Apparently we have to talk about Chris Penn. Here's the thing. So when we got to this part, I couldn't remember how it was going to go. So we basically were we're driving, moving right along, driving through the country. Vita stops at the beautiful fancy house where she grew up in Ballackinwood, Pennsylvania, which every time I drive through there, I think about Vita. And this older lady in a suit just like hers steps out and then steps back in. And then Vita tears up the map and is like, maps are cheating. We're going to drive by our instincts. Okay. Maps are cheating was like a terrifying line in this movie. (laughs) As a millennial, I can't even use a map to drive to somewhere. So like, I mean. (laughs) The chaos of deciding after seeing your mom who didn't accept you and deciding, no, I'm going to put myself directly. One, relatable. I get it. But also. Oh, God, that was the worst choice. That was the worst decision. You know how when something bad happens to you, you have to like do a worse thing to yourself immediately for some reason? I get it. 
Yes, but also like, oh God. Yeah. Right. Not with direction. Yeah. Throw your gum out of the car and that can be your masochism for the moment. Litter for a moment, feel bad about it, and then go and pick it up later. Yeah. Have unfresh breath, live with the consequences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have that interlude. It's sort of intermittently like joyful and scary. The girls stop at some kind of chain motel. And Vita really doesn't want to go in. Neither does Noxima. She She's going to chance it. And then the manager <laughs> comes out and it's like, welcome, ladies. It's the Women's Basketball Conference. <laughs> Come right in. I mean, I love it. I feel like this was maybe before this moment. But I feel like in the late 90s, there was like this legitimate fear of the WNBA. <laughs> I just learned from a super quick Google a couple of things. One, the WNBA, Sarah, launched on our birthday in 1996. Aww. Aww. I know exactly where I was when the WNBA launched. I was at a Discovery Zone. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh. How old would I have been? 13? Oh, I had just accidentally set a building on fire. Uh, we can talk about that another time. <laughs> I need that story. This is like the opening scenes of our biopic is like a split screen of that. <laughs> And then the WNBA is launching and we bring that in. <laughs> but I, I loved it as a joke with them just being like, nobody knows drag queens exist. Like right. this guy's just like eagerly having them. And I was like, cool. Like they're going to walk into like a drag convention and this guy's like hip. Nope. <laughs> and the payoff was basically a punchline nodding to Wesley Snipes rise to fame and white men can't jump. Like that was what they were doing. Cause like he then dunks or doesn't dunk, but he's able to touch the rim. And I was like, ha, yeah, this is a great nod to where Wesley Snipes has been. I know that if there was any type of runtime issue, this would have been cut for runtime. <laughs> but like, I'm so glad it wasn't. It's so adorable. I love it so much. Yeah, it's a deleted scene in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then it gets a little sad and crazy. Yeah. And then the movie begins. Yes. Okay. So first night, things get scary, but nice motel man rescues them and they get to play basketball everything's great okay second night not so good they get pulled over and when the cop who pulled them over gets out you see that he's chris penn and i couldn't remember how this part went from the last time i watched it and i was like okay it's chris penn so i feel like this could go in one of two directions right he could be like the charming idiot <laughs> who like lets them go and is sweet and it could be footloose Chris Penn, or he mm. could be a scary idiot who gets frustrated because he's an idiot and does something terrible, which seems like very believable mm -hmm. cop behavior. Yep. Relatable to a person watching real police every day. And he takes option B, and it's very scary. And my digression before that I wanted to derail us with, and I will derail us with now for a moment, is that this movie comes out. A few years after Thelma and Louise and a few years before Practical Magic, which we're going to be talking about this month as well. And all three of these movies are about ladies on the road, just like trying to experience America and having to accidentally kill someone or think they've killed someone just because he shows up and escalates it to that point. And then you're just like, oh, holy fuck, what do we do about this? Right. A man shows up and asks to be killed. Basically, <laughs> yeah. He like, demands to be killed. He forces the issue. He's like, please kill me. And you're like, no, thank you. And he's like, nope, got to do it. Got to kill me. So in this case, Chris Penn asks Vita to come 
out of the car, we get like the even in the moment or maybe especially in the moment, really funny exchange where Vita says, like, we're career girls and we're looking for a moderately priced hotel. And Chris Penn is like, you know what you career girls really want? And she says, careers. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And then he first says, like, he doesn't like her coming through these parts fraternizing with a black woman and a Latinx woman. And then he tries to sexually assault her. And then we also get the line from Vita. I think it's take your hand off my dick, buddy. Yep. (laughs) And then like pushes him down. And then he appears to have died. He's like passed out or unconscious. He's out cold. It's so fucking real. It's so real. Like it gets real so hard. It really does. There's such a theme with Patrick Swayze roles, and I feel like this movie and Roadhouse are like two sides of the exact same coin, where you're just like, I am just a peaceful wanderer trying to find my place in America, and people keep demanding to have conflicts with me. Yeah, in Roadhouse, he's just a like yeah. super nice philosophy major. Philosophy PhD, Alex. He has a doctorate. A philo- he's a doctor of philosophy, and somebody <laughs> demands to literally get their throat ripped out in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, and he's like, I don't want to, but I will do it. (laughs) There's a Lady Gaga quote from like interviews prior to House of Gucci. I don't advocate for murder, but I do believe in women's rights, which (laughs) (laughs) sums up my feel about this scene. Right, and sometimes you end up with a real Venn diagram. Don't believe in murder, but well. In the quote-unquote battered wife cases of the 70s and 80s, like I'm obsessed by the fact that there was coverage at the time and still when this happens people were just way more obvious about it then of like why are these women killing their husbands why are they killing their boyfriends why do women want to murder their male significant others and it's like we don't want to murder them we just have to sometimes it just comes up okay chris penn is out cold the girls decide that they need to get the hell out of dodge because they think they've accidentally killed a cop they cheese it they thelma and louise it And then their beautiful cream puff of a vintage automobile breaks down in, I think at least they filmed it in a tiny town in Nebraska, and they have to get it fixed. And this is where we're going to be for the rest of the movies, in this little town where they stay in a motel slash auto shop run by Stalker Channing and her husband, played by Arliss Howard. So basically, the journey for the rest of the movie is that they want to get their car fixed. It's going to be a few days As someone living in a world dictated by supply chains, when they're like, it'll take a couple of days to get the part. Oh, no. I'm just like, oh, the 90s. What a time. What a world. As opposed to a couple of years or something. To be fair, it's like you're going to be a couple of days in a town that could kill you because of who you are. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, for real. Because like today they would have to just live there for the rest of their entire lives (laughs) because that would be how long it would take. Yes. And right. So they come with this anxiety of like, We need to get through the middle part of this country as fast as possible because, like, anyone could be Chris Penn. But fortunately, no one knows we are drag queens aside from one person. Mm -hmm. The fiction of this movie is that, ah, yes, these three pass. These three passes is women. Mm -hmm. This is the second Stalker Channing appearance I thought was Samantha from Sex and the City. They do have similar faces. Oh, my God. She's like the New England Samantha. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, England, Samantha. 
that does that does check out. Oh god, that's right. so good. Yes. So we have Virgil, the auto mechanic, who is bad news, and his wife, Stalker Channing, who we love, and we realize quickly Virgil is beating up, and so. Basically, everyone sort of disperses and makes friends and fix the town in a couple of days. Vita helps Stockard Channing to push Virgil aside and acknowledge the abuse. The plot line that I like the least is that Chi-Chi first has this like romance with like local farm boy yeah. Pink Floyd from Dazed and Confused. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And they have a very sweet romance going. I think his name is Bobby Ray and then Stalker Channing's daughter is Bobby Lee and Bobby Lee really likes Bobby Ray. It's very Torkelson's. But the plot there is that Chi-Chi and Bobby Ray are having like this really lovely little romance and basically Vita and Noxima are like you know you can't pursue things with Bobby Ray. Let Bobby Lee have him. And he doesn't know who you really are. And it just can't happen. It cannot be. It's very like we are angels and we are celibate Mm -hmm. in this town. That is exactly what that is. And it is like if I were to redo this, Mm -hmm. that would be the one thing where I would tweak that. Mm -hmm. If that was going to happen, that Chi Chi had someone else that was right there that made more sense. Or like Mm -hmm. there was a moment of discovery where it was like, oh, oh, I understand now what's going on. And you know what? I'm still here for this or just something like that where Chi-Chi doesn't get the short end of the stick. Yeah. Chi-Chi deserves better. Yeah. I hope Chi-Chi's getting better in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's so much work to do in this little town. So, like, they just have nothing going on for entertainment except the strawberry social where they all have a pie competition. And the girls are like, (laughs) oh, like, let's make a real event out of this and we're going to decorate it. And what will the theme be? What do strawberries make you think of? And someone's like, red. Red and wild. (laughs) Red and wild. Mm. And so they have a theme. They put on a social. Chris Penn, who did not die, Muppet Christmas Carol reference, (laughs) starts looking for the drag queens who assaulted him. And essentially, all of the other cops laugh at him. And he is driven onto an Ahab-esque attempt to find the girls and also Vita in a very giving Cinderella moment left one of her sandals one of her cute shoes at the scene and so he has her shoe and he's going around looking for her with the shoe (sighs) to me the part of this movie that's aged most interestingly of anything is that I feel like Chris Penn he's supposed to be a threat but like he's made fun of in every scene that he's in I think we're supposed to know to find him scary but not too scary yeah. But like at the same time, I feel like we're just living in the world that he's in charge of now. Like it's just Chris Penn's America today and we didn't take him seriously enough. Or maybe we did. And in a fictional story, it's good to like at least fictionally get to defeat Chris Penn. But so, OK, we're aware that as the girls are fixing this town, Chris Penn is gradually closing in. He finds them when Stalker Channing's husband, who has recently had his life destroyed by his wife having self-esteem suddenly because she met Vita. Which is like basically like killing him. Yes. When Vita whoops his ass and kicks him out the damn house. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I love to see that happen when somebody is wearing heels. There's just something about that that makes me happy in my core. I can't explain it, but it just is true. Seeing somebody deliver vigilante justice in this way, mainly because, like, 
it is very clear that there's no other way to pursue justice for this person in this town. So to mm-hmm. physically insert yourself here to stop the thing, which is not usually the recommended thing, that inserting yourself into a physical altercation is not actually the thing that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to usually offer resources to a person, but clearly that's also not an option here. So mm-hmm. insert oneself into the situation to help when like that doesn't necessarily seem like a possibility for the other person to do. Yeah. Vita doesn't start fights, but she does end them. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, yeah, so they have their whole their town improvement story. The like women of the town, like all sort of get their lives improved in some way or another. They have a day with the girls where they all you know, have their hair done, get makeup, find like random 60s clothes that are stashed in the attic of the general store for some reason. Vita gives the general store clerk, I think it's Diana Vreeland's memoirs. Yeah, I think so. And the clerk is played, I'm pretty positive, by the guy who runs the water records office and Aaron Brockovich. She's destined to be behind a desk. Holy shit. And hats. Vita puts on a say something hat. We have a whole thing with Chi-Chi earning princess points to become a full queen and climax. Chris Penn finds out after Virgil sits next to him at the bar and sees him staring at Vita's shoe, which he has on the bar next to him very unhygienically. Why would you do that, Chris Penn? Finds out where his nemeses are. And so Chris Penn shows up at the town. And it's like such a classic Western moment because it's like, A, we have a very Deadwood looking location. And B, he like rolls in demanding that the drag queens surrender. And it would be hilarious if it didn't feel like exactly what's happening all over America right now, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and then we close with this like, I am Spartacus thing where the townspeople, almost all of whom have figured out this way that their new friends are drag queens, like all step out into the street and are like, I'm a drag queen. I'm a drag queen. I'm a drag queen. And this is mm. my shoe. And Chris Penn is laughed out of town forever. And then they all have the strawberry social and it's a big party and it's wonderful. And then Stockard Channing has her line, which JV, I want you to tell us about. Oh, boy. The line that is my absolute favorite line is women don't have Adam's apples. Debatable, but fine. (laughs) And so functionally, the whole thing is that Stockard Channing acknowledges. Yeah, no, I've known that you were a drag queen this entire time. I know that you were assigned male at birth. And honestly, I just feel very grateful to have a lady friend who happens to have an Adam's apple. And it just, it made me, it just, I don't know. That line literally makes me tear up. It's just one of those sort of acceptance moments that is just so, so lovely. Just so beautiful to see. What did she say that it reminded me of Sarah's line earlier? She says something like, to me, you're not a man, you're not a woman, you're an angel. Yes. Yeah. But she yells it across the street, which I would say that more quietly closer to someone that's my <laughs> yeah i mean it was clearly a moment where like, i think everybody had sort of realized so i don't know that it was a problem but like yeah. well when everyone suddenly knows the shoe size it was like yeah <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i love the cafe owner i think his line specifically where he like a little bit was flirting with the cop which just again as an old black man is a weird thing to do <laughs> And he cups his breast in such a like yes. provocative way when that happened. I, like I was that. like, this it, is great. Good thing there's a mob involved. 
<laughs> like iconic. I love it. He's got Blythe Danner. Every moment of like adding a little bit of gay to everybody's life is always good, first and foremost. Just a high, mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. But also, like seeing that added to this town over this whole story and seeing that. Yeah, when you add more types of people to people's lives, things become less stale, things start to feel fresher because you get new ideas going, and it's fun, and you might discover something new about yourself, and that's always good. Mm. And that's the thing that I like most about this movie is the, yeah, sometimes we can get in our own way by being like stuck in a certain mindset or almost siloing ourselves by filling ourselves with just one or two types of people not us three in particular <laughs> I, I i can never confidently <laughs> say that i don't think that like the people on this call in particular do that but i would say that it's always good to have roomfuls of different people who have mm-hmm. all these fresh ideas and possibly new opportunities for things that people can do to make their lives more interesting. I like that part of the movie rather a lot. And also that being having been inspired by one of those movies from the 80s. It was a propaganda type film. It's not Red Dawn, is it? (laughs) No, no. It was one of those like public service announcement movie type thing. They had a lot of them about the gays in general. And this is another one where Mm. it was like drag queens will come to small town America. Thank God. I mean, I wish. (laughs) Yeah, this whole movie was inspired by that. Really? Oh, my God. And the person who saw that being like, honestly, that sounds fabulous. I, (laughs) I think that's exactly what should happen. And here is the movie. And that makes a lot of sense to me personally. Wow. I don't know how anybody in this town makes their money. No. No idea. Like, I don't know how that's happening. (laughs) Sarah and I just recorded a bonus on the New Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and this town has the same thing going on that that does, is like, what is anyone doing? What's what's the economy here? (laughs) Sandwich sales. It's like, there's not a grocery store. I don't know how anything's happening here. This town doesn't make any sense in that realm. But you know what? That's fine. I feel like there are towns like this in America and what they don't show you in movies is that like there's a Walmart two miles away. Yeah. And then there's like, you know, a TJ Maxx and an Outback Steakhouse. And like, that's where everybody does what they have to do. There's an Ames for some (laughs) reason. (laughs) One of the things that stuck out to me in this viewing is that, you know, like it's obvious to me now that this movie is a fantasy. Mm. And I know that that sounds silly, but like, Having been like an adolescent and teen in the 90s when everyone was just like, progress, like we're going towards something better. And even if it was not true on the ground, it felt like at least in sort of popular discourse, there was a suggestion that if we all worked together the right way and had like the right ideas, we were going towards a better place. But obviously, like the lived reality of that was not that then. I Mm -hmm. assume that people even with the greatest amounts of optimism, didn't think that like this reality in this town was going to happen 20 to 30 years out, let alone at that moment. But I love this movie as like a Fantasia. Yeah. Like, wouldn't it be nice (laughs) if like, you know, we showed Mm -hmm. up and this is what was possible. Yeah. This is a reverse horror movie. It is. Oh, wow. Wow. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Even comparing it to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, but if you're in a horror movie, never go to a small town, never be any kind of woman. Nope. Never go to rural America at all. And Mm -hmm. never talk to 
cute old ladies or folksy small town men. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in a Hallmark movie, you can do all these things, but you can never leave. You're going to live in that town for the rest of your life. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. Your entire life will center around Christmas. So that could also be horror. But in this, it's like, go to a small town, be shocked progressively by like how lovely everyone is and how responsive they are to you and your attempts to help them and how rather than wanting to annihilate you, they want to be changed by you. Yeah. Having lived in the same relatively small town for like my entire life, I gradually have sort of had this coming out process for the entirety of, well, the entirety of the time that gender has been a question on my mind, which has basically been since the age of nine, right on up until now, where like, am I going to leave my house in this exact outfit? No, but literally because it's cold, Mm -hmm. because it is cold as hell outside these are very sheer this is just basically my bare flesh right here like i can't go out like this gore-tex doesn't drape well (laughs) exactly were i to do that now it would basically just be fine admittedly Mm -hmm. like i'm not in what i'm imagining the vibe of this place is is that this is in the south somewhere and admittedly i'm not in the south i'm in the rather progressive state of massachusetts sure and that has helped I have never really encountered anyone being like just overtly within this town. It's happened elsewhere, but not within this town. Had someone be just aggressively shitty to me about being a trans woman. What has happened has been like people occasionally being like, "Mm, I don't know about all that, Mm -hmm. but not saying it directly to me, but mentioning it just in a conversation to somebody else. But not even being that direct about it because they're like, this could reflect poorly on me in a couple of years. So I'm just going to not say anything shitty about it now. Hmm. That's a general good vibe. If you're going to have the thoughts of questioning whether or not like someone gender wise is doing a good or bad thing. One, just don't say anything. Literally don't say anything. Not just not to that person literally to anyone else because again this could reflect very poorly on you in a couple years time when things have possibly progressed in such a way that like yeah no this is just fine and a commonly understood and accepted thing and you certainly don't want those text messages to pop right back up now do you Mm. that's one of the things that i thought about when i was thinking about why i enjoy this movie as much as i do and also there's this other thing of like The criticisms of this movie are such that, like, one has weird, weird racial politics, like very, very, very strange racial politics. We neglected to mention Miss RuPaul in the beginning as Miss Racial Tensions. Yeah. Yeah. I got a text from Alex at like seven this morning. Wait, let me read it. Please. Yes. I did not expect to see this dress RuPaul is wearing. <laughs> yeah. That's like the first thing I saw this morning. Oh, God. Uh-huh. <laughs> it sure is a lot. RuPaul is wearing a shiny Confederate flag dress. <laughs> and then they have to decide, like, where the stripes go if the dress, like, continues down. So it becomes, like, two flags in a way. <laughs> it's a very big flag dress. It is a lot. Fascinating. Like, there's a, like, running across the border reference, I think, at some point. Although I think that that was Pat- maybe Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Little- Mom had a new baby, so it's kind of hard. 
That was definitely, I think, also a 1995 thing of like, if we're going to make jokes about like somebody's race, it'll likely be from one person of color to another. That's where we'll hide it. Yeah. And also still there's a nuanced thing there of like, but also when the chips are down, we're going to be there for you, at least Mm. coming from black people specifically. I can speak to that. Mm. I can't speak to the other sides of that. But like from within the black community, even then it was a like, no, we're still going to like show up for you, mm. providing you do show up for us. And if you do, then great. And like, sure, sometimes that leads to like some wild, wild, wild statements from certain people throughout like the years. Even that part, like, again, the racial politics are weird, but it still feels at its heart, like it will be like a shitty thing that somebody said, but not followed up with actions or beliefs that were really shitty. Hmm. More like a commentary on the time and the understanding of the time rather than the innate distaste for other people. Hmm. I mean, there is something real to the fact that like everyone will have their shit with each other generally and be catty or shitty in the ways that they are. But like the two villains in this movie are, you know, Sachet white men like those are the two villains yeah is it pronounced sishet that's that's what i just said i don't know if that's true i like that sishet sishet i do the shh because of the i like sishet sishet is also kind of great i live (laughs) who played poirot most famously david (laughs) (laughs) i live (laughs) i didn't realize i just fucked that up until you said it out no no it's (laughs) No, but it's, I like it better, though. It sounds yeah. funny. It does. <laughs> the two It's like, oh, sir, who are you dating? Oh, it's a, it's a Sichet guy. Uh, I like him. I like put a cha at the front, but it put it in the middle. <laughs> I live it. I live it. works for me personally. I love it. I say go for it. Let's make that a thing. The two villains in this movie <laughs> are white Sichet. <laughs> White sachets. White yeah. sachets. <laughs> two, two bad old white fellas. <laughs> and then everyone else is like living with some version of their oppression. Yeah. Like when right. we are up against the main form of oppression, which is these two guys that are fucking obsessed, we unify in some way. Yeah. The scene where they have Chris Penn at the bar kind of losing it right before he meets Virgil and figures out where to find Vita he's like (laughs) monologuing about like men having sex with each other and it's like again I think it's like very funny it's like a broadly comedic moment and also it just like feels deeply true to like the world that we're living in or the country that we're living in anyway we're just I do feel like people are monologuing to themselves like this essentially truly the people who think about gay sex the most are absolutely not gay men i'll be honest (laughs) it's a ridiculous thing to do which is why it feels so comedic but it is also just simply how a lot of people go about the thinking about the thing that scares them the most Hmm. the other things that this movie sort of has like odd opinions about obviously is also more broadly gender and its understanding of it i always justify that by like it was 1995 pre-wide available access to the internet wherein people aren't necessarily able to very easily share these definitions with each other unless they're like an academic and happen to have all this access to like libraries and whatever which most people from within the community don't have access to. So naturally, Noxiva has this idea of what being a drag queen is, 
because the only queens that she's interacted with have been queens from New York City, because Mm. there is no broader Internet access to, again, the wider world of like other people with other experiences. A lot of times the world, I think, at large forgets that there are different types of trans women just generally. Mm -hmm. Mm, Great point. Yeah. There's the type like myself who had a very particular path of like thinking for a very long time that, yes, in fact, I was a gay man and that was just how I was going to live my life until realizing that that was not, in fact, actually it. In fact, there's a person in the early part of this movie whose name is escaping me, but he's the old man. Oh, Quentin Crisp. Yes, that's him. That's the one. Towards the end of his life, he identified as a trans woman. Mm -hmm. This came out in, a, I guess, a memoir that was released posthumously. And he said, yeah, I came to realize that I am transgender. However, you can continue to think of me as a gay man because that's what you all knew me as. Hmm. Quentin Crisp was in the celluloid closet documentary which was on ifc quite often when i was in eighth grade and so i remember just i don't know i have like great nostalgia for that the amount of like people who they did pay to be in this movie the queens and trans women who were in this movie who got paid by this movie to be in this movie in simply the opening scene and the ending scene Mm -hmm. i love that i like that because it means that people in a time period where making money for being who you are in this particular way is not a thing that's easy to do. There's not a lot of money in being a drag queen, or at least there wasn't prior to like Drag Race. And even now, there still isn't that much money to it unless you are on Drag Race. So to see people having gotten paid to be in this huge movie that like Steven Spielberg was a part of in some way, shape or form (laughs) is wonderful. Mm -hmm. What I was saying about there being different kinds of trans women. Yes, there's the trans woman who like Mm -hmm. at one point identified as gay men for like a good chunk of time. Sure. There are also trans lesbians, and they obviously would have a much different trajectory than someone like myself would. So as with any type of representation within any type of media, there's that issue of like, yeah, we're representing one facet of this type of identity. There are all of these other ones that are a little bit similar in certain respects, but a lot of the experience in how they got to where they are is completely different. I mean, more broadly, if across the board as human beings, that's always going to be different. But the fact that there is that like sort of general path that is sort of an easy thing to sort of see and note is a thing that goes to why I love this movie as much as I do and why like Hmm. it can be comforting. Also partially, again, living in a small town and having this concept of like, oof, this town seems dangerous to me is like just overtly dangerous, except there's a chance that it might not be. And that little (laughs) element of hope, that little nugget of hope there is a good thing to carry from the movie, even if it has some weird views on race but also if we're being fair so did priscilla queen of the desert had some Mm. wildly racist things in that one just a different flavor of racism there honestly i'll be honest it was more uncomfortable there because at least in this one it took like a stance as to like racism is bad like that's a a clear stance (laughs) that it took whereas in priscilla queen of the desert it's just a character that is a massive racial stereotype Mm. and the movie itself doesn't really comment on that at all Mm. my friend sam i told him that we're covering this movie and he had said that he thinks about this movie a lot when the right in particular says 
you probably couldn't make X movie anymore. Like you couldn't make that movie today with the way today is. And he's like, on the opposite end, like I have a hard time believing that we could make a movie with like two of three action stars Mm -hmm. in which this would happen. And then they'd be allowed to be in our imagination action stars anymore. Yeah. Whereas like people would just be like, okay, next action movie with Wesley Snipes. (laughs) Like that's the thing that we're doing. Yeah. This is pre-Blade, I'll have to remind myself. Like, he still went on to be Blade. But I think part of the reason we don't see that is also the growing understanding of what and who we are seeing. Mm -hmm. Not that the role necessarily has to directly match an identity always, but at least somebody, hopefully from generally speaking within the larger community, will at least have some level of empathy in the portrayal of this person. I know as an actor that I personally am fine if I need to present in a masculine way throughout the majority of a movie. I mean, I haven't been in a movie, but I would presumably be mostly fine if I had to do that because I can easily do that. Mm -hmm. I can honestly say that I don't know that there's a lot of trans women who would be comfortable with doing that, who would be comfortable with like having to have themselves on screen displaying in a masculine way and then also in a feminine way later on in the film. So I think casting a cis person Mm -hmm. to do that with heavy consultation from trans people makes sense to me. Mm. Please don't send letters, everybody. Um, (laughs) But like that, that's my personal take on that in general. Yeah, it's important to establish that JV... It's not establishing policy for all Hollywood. Precisely. So if you can find somebody who's willing and able and mentally has the fortitude to be able to deal with all of that, then by all means, go ahead and cast them in that role. But I'm going to be honest, I don't know that a lot of us mental health wise are fully prepared to be able to deal with all of that. Mm. So obviously Patrick Swayze got it. Yes, absolutely. There was also hold on. Robert Downey Jr. Oh. Billy Baldwin. Mm. Billy Baldwin would have been a joke, unfortunately. To Baldwin. Yeah. Gary Oldman. Wow. Matthew Broderick. Ooh, Broderick. He would have put his heart and soul into it. Oh, yeah. Like with everything. James Spader. Weird. (laughs) Too evil. (laughs) John Cusick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that could have been good. Who apparently, according to the list, said he looked exactly like his sister, Joan. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because all of these people had screen tests in drag. I would hope so. I want to see that so badly. I want to see John as Joan in broadcast news. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, Mel Gibson. By the way, in this movie, there's a great joke in which the women are talking about their fantasies and either like predicting the future Mm. or knowing stuff about Mel Gibson. Now they say, I love Mm -hmm. Mel Gibson, but he's not allowed to say anything. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that was prescient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. There are a few more here. Willem Dafoe is the next one on this list. John Turturro, Matt Dillon, yeah. Rob Lowe, mm-hmm. Johnny Depp. Oh, dear. Oh, God. A lot of these guys are really young. I feel like Patrick Swayze was like good age casting. And exactly. That he's, like, I mean, he's a matriarch, you know? And he's a dancer. Yeah. He's a ballet guy. Yeah. That would have been, I think, a reason to cast Robin Williams in that he, by this point, was like a little bit familiar with the concept of being in hair and makeup mm-hmm. that much and for that long, because apparently that was one of the like main issues with the three queens in question mm-hmm. was them having to be in hair and makeup and the fact that, that took like three hours, which... 
I will say that doesn't feel the most extremely believable is this only took me about an hour and a half. So that's incredible. I mean, I can imagine like if you were not tied to the process or ritual and like you just yeah. have to sit for three. <laughs> we talk about, you know, like like 80s horror. They had to sit for like five or six hours mm-hmm. in a makeup chair. And I'm like, that must have been fucking torture. I don't know. I often sit still for five or six hours. So if they could be watching TV during that, I would be into it. I'll wear prosthetics. <laughs> I do like having my face touched by a stranger. That is, that is <laughs> I enjoy. Yeah. So there was that bit of like behind the scenes drama. Apparently there is a fight between Patrick Swayze and John Leguizamo in drag. Really? I, I wish that was filmed. Why? Because John Leguizamo was improving too much. Oh, okay. <laughs> the reason that Patrick Swayze got the role is because of his walk and presumably the dancer training helped there. Mm. They had this moment where like they had to go out in public and go on this like long walk while he was in drag to see how well he basically passed. But apparently he was still able to do that with the exception of John Leguizamo. I didn't see him actually talk about this, but when they went to go sit with like actual drag queens to go see drag shows and like just watch the process and like that whole thing mm-hmm. they so they found it just so amazing i vibe with that there's something about that experience of these people going into that space and having that experience and seeing what it is like and how it feels and how difficult it is how challenging it is how just life-wise it's really complicated It's one of the reasons I honestly a little bit would encourage certain people to like try to try to do this just to see how difficult it is because Mm -hmm. you then build up that appreciation for the experience of another person and understanding that's what that person does like all the time. And that's just a really cool exercise in building empathy. Mm. We've talked in the show about how like a kid on TikTok now sees 40 to 50 people who are like them in a way that we would call like representation, you know, before mm-hmm. noon than I ever saw in my entire life on television. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like I saw like a gay person on the real world first like that was it (laughs) yeah and then he died on the day of the finale yeah and the person who i find the most surprising in this role is wesley snipes oh yeah one thousand percent just wesley snipes is like the most action hero strong male comedian just like look at his fucking arm he's like a machine and was just decidedly an action hero and then i had not ever really encountered black queer people in popular culture at all even in like mass culture Mm -hmm. there just wasn't much by way of of any representation so the fact that wesley snipes was like i'm gonna take on this role is wild (laughs) and like willingly and quickly and before they'd even cast Vita, hmm. signed up for the thing and was like, wow. no, I want this. I want this now, actually. Thank you. And like, we just went for it. That's iconic to me. This was in no small part the first time I had seen in this particular case, a gay black man, whatever, but also actually I would argue a trans woman just simply given the nature mm. of how often mm. they're in drag when they don't need yeah. to be. Right. Wigs in a convertible. Going to sleep in drag in a hotel when you don't need to is one of those like, <laughs> yeah, uh, like in wild thing. That's trans shit. <laughs> I love that Chi Chi like won't put her wig on on the way to the competition 
and then she wears it for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the main thing I was wondering about this movie and how like what it's doing with gender and what it has language for Mm -hmm. or has faith in its viewers to have language for. Is this like (laughs) like Hollywood creating a piecemeal understanding of trans identity because it's like this is a movie about drag queens everyone knows what drag queens are they're big right now Mm -hmm. drag queens drag queens drag queens but they just they like transform in the opening minutes and then they just stay that way the entire movie and they just are women yeah we never see them as gay men yeah exactly that's the thing about this whole movie where i'm like yeah so this is actually just a movie about trans people but we haven't like figured out how to word that exactly and like it's not that the word didn't exist the word existed at the time but Mm -hmm. again due to lack of internet not widely understood everywhere what that particular part meant Mm -hmm. i think though that the portrayal is ultimately of basically the identity of like again, the late 80s and early 90s trans experience. Mm. Even when I think of, for example, like Marsha P. Johnson being regarded by most people now as a trans woman, firmly identified as a drag queen throughout the whole time that she was alive, Mm-hmm. most likely due to, like, again, knowledge of other options. And this continues to happen to me. Like, and again, this is why I'm thankful for them TikTok teens, because I learn more things as I, like, see this content. And with the more representation that I see, there's, like, more understanding of, like, oh, the asexual right. spectrum. I am somewhere along this spectrum, and it is interesting to note where I am because it was not where mm. I thought I was. That's been a thing in the last few months for me of mm-hmm. like just things I've like been looking at and thinking, wow, this is the, what this terminology means, and this is what is being defined here experience-wise and experience-wise. This is matching up. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's the beauty of having the internet as a tool is like being able to understand ourselves better via the experiences of other people who are then talking Mm -hmm. about them and understanding it that way. And I think largely that this movie is an example of that prior to the internet existing where, again, the experiences could be a little more easily sort of categorized. And Mm -hmm. were we to potentially remake something like this now, it would look, one, vastly different, but also its language would be a lot clearer We would understand these things, Mm. but then also at a certain point, because this is just the nature of the culture that it is in, even within the community, it would be such that like at a certain point, people would be like, we're going to stop talking about definitions and we're just going to have Mm. a good time because I know that we all understand this, but we also are all here because there's a party happening and let's have this party. (laughs) So let's do the daddy question. Is there a father in this movie? Virgil has kids, yeah. Oh, yeah. Virgil is a father. But that leads us to ask, who is the daddy? I think it's Noxima. Mm. And part of that has to do with, well, one, the practicality by which she just sort of surrounds herself generally. Even the sequence where she has to discipline a a bunch of teenagers in a rather wild way. But like, Oh, God, I didn't even talk about that part. (laughs) I guess that's one way to discipline a group of teenagers, I suppose. I wouldn't recommend it. That also sounds like a great way to wind up on a list somewhere. Mm -hmm. But it got the job done. It made people treat women with 
with respect. I liked that that is the lesson that was taken from that more than anything else. Don't be disrespectful to these women who live in your town and also us. Mm -hmm. Be polite to them. Just do that. Mm -hmm. I appreciate her for that. And also like even her initial reluctant acceptance of like, fine, I guess we have to train another queen. (laughs) There's something about that like, yeah, that's usually not how that goes. Usually people are a lot more joyful and like more motherly about that instinct. Mm. Hence why drag mom is a term that exists and is just a role mm. that people have. And the reluctance to necessarily do that, but still ultimately winding up doing that is some dad energy, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm curious what y'all think, though. Well, I want to nominate the specific combo of Vita and Sybil, or no, Stalker Channing's character isn't Sybil, but Vita and Stalker Channing's character, because I feel like there's a dyad with the two of them, right? Because we have two matriarchs who are also victims of abuse. Vita was rejected by her family, and Stalker Channing is in an abusive marriage, and who are like raising their girls, helping other people before themselves, and get to meet and recognize each other. And I guess, I don't know, I love it when Stalker Channing is like, before her big Adam's apple moment, she's like, I think it's important to have lady friends. Yeah. And I also love that one of the stars of this movie is like the need for female friendship, like, Mm. and that this is specifically a movie about like, we need lady friends and like, they can be trans women or they can be drag queens if that's the language that we're using in 1995 or... They can be cis women, but like the point is that like we need a day with the girls. <laughs> yeah. Uh absolutely agreed. Yeah. I think I'm gonna go with Wesley Snipes. It just again, I just hadn't seen anything by way of black queer representation at all in popular media. Yeah. Absolutely. And to the thing of like black queer representation, this was pre-RuPaul's Drag Race and RuPaul himself was literally like the only representation that like identity wise that kind of loosely a little bit matched what I felt like but not really. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, like RuPaul is someone who yeah. you'd see if you were not in like the New York scene in the 80s is someone who you'd see in like occasional cameos. And yeah. also like if you had no context for what was going on, it was like was like a personality and it was a person. I'm not saying that wasn't the case, but like it could be devoid of context. Mm-hmm. Again, I just can't believe I just can't mm-hmm. believe Wesley Snipes was like, I'm going to do this and bless him for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I will always be thankful that Wesley Sipes agreed to do this role and like that career wise, he didn't suffer for it. Mm-hmm. It didn't immediately end any of their careers. Like they kept making things after this. And that's just, I think, is a spot of hope. Well, I mean, there's a lot of hope in this movie. It's sort of a key part of why this movie, I of why it's an enjoyable movie, <laughs> is that it is a very hopeful film. Mm. There's something really nice about that. One thing that these actors absolutely did really well was make sure that the characters themselves were not actually jokes, mm-hmm. like that they felt real right. and fleshed out, that they had purpose and reason for existing, even if that reason is just reading a book and dreaming about it. Hmm. Beautiful. JV, always a pleasure. Thanks for bringing glamour to our Google Meet. Thanks for bringing glamour to our dusty town. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for yassifying our small town. <laughs> Always happy to do it. Yes, honey. Um, <laughs>
All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to JV for being on the episode. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick, our producer and music director who makes all of these episodes sound great. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats to today's show. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Patreon where you can find those bonus episodes I was talking about. That's it for this week's episode. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for supporting us every week. Thanks for making a reason for this show. You are good. Take it easy, everybody.